uh, you are a natural to invite to come and talk about Darwin. And I told you before that we went on the air that I was just going to say, well, William, tell us about this Charles Darwin guy. <laughs> and, and that would leave you with a lot of rope to, to, to go wherever you want to go in terms of influence, particularly of Darwin and how we look at science and the things that are possible. So why don't I just, uh, you think a sports metaphor, toss you the ball and see see where you go with it. Well, you know, when we, we, we say the word Darwin, we all think immediately of evolution, and most people think of human evolution. After all, you know, we are, you know, with the Renaissance phrase, the proper study of mankind is man, you know. So um, we are used to thinking these terms about evolution and human evolution, but he did something much broader as well. In that ferment of the 1860s, all kinds of new sciences developing, tying chemistry and energy together, tying electricity and magnetism and light together, getting technologies out of that. This is what they were doing in the middle of the century, is bringing many different separate sciences together. And that's one of those things he did as well. He did it for biology. In fact, you could say there's no biology, a complete study of life science, until he put it all together. So he didn't work on physiology, or a few experiments here and there, but it helps explain you know, how we all share certain genes that are the same so we can understand you know, from studying you know, some laboratory organism's liver how our liver works, or we can understand blood because every mammal has you know, similar things going on, or the anatomy. All those ties that came together were really important. And he did something else. Um, he helped develop the idea of what we might call historical sciences, I mean, the ones we use, geology. Um, he was ahead of astronomy. People didn't talk about the development of the solar system really until he had opened up the whole evolution question. Um, so anytime we think about these really deep causes that we can find, you know, the real structural things, you know, how does something work, you know, like gravity, that's why the ball falls down. If you can find a set of those causes and then trace them and show, oh, when those run for a long time, things are going to develop, things are going to change. And I think you said a few minutes ago when we were chatting before the show that you know he helped loosen up this whole idea that everything changes, everything evolves, everything develops. Um, and that was a really important idea to move from a kind of a static world to a really dynamic world, one that we're really, it's common sense now for us. Um, but I like the way that he found a way to reason. He made science bigger. Um, and jump in any time here, if, yeah. you know, because uh, what I mean by bigger is we we sometimes think that that can't possibly be science. You know, how could evolution be a science? You can't go back in time and do an experiment. You know, you can't really show that absolutely this you know organism here gave rise to this other one. We have to deduce it all from all the connections and all the way it makes sense. It's that tying everything together that makes it make sense. We actually do that in all the sciences, but Darwin made it more obvious. I mean, it's not obvious until Newton comes along that the same thing that explains a pendulum swinging and a ball falling and the trajectory of the cannonball, that it's all the same thing going on. And he writes the one simple equation. In some ways, Darwin did that for life. Um, and also, you know, the Earth. Um, so geology, climate changes, the, you know, the ice ages, you know, going back and forth. 
We can understand those by looking for the causes and then tracing them. Well, now, I'm the man on the street here, and you're the scientist, but, but, but I hear you saying what, what I've figured out by myself. I guess maybe I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek now. Great minds run on the same track. But well, they certainly do. <laughs> the, word, the word, well, when I am watching a medicine commercial on TV, what I always want to know is the mechanism. Yeah. And that's, that is what Darwin showed us as a mechanism for doing one thing, and that is the, 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 how selection was done, how animals changed, what the yeah. mechanism was. And, and, we see uh, a pattern, we want to know what makes that pattern run that way. Well, yeah, well, it, could be, it could be just about anything, so how do you find it? You test all the possible ways. You know, it did mean he had to reject that just telling me it just is doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't satisfy my curiosity. It doesn't explain anything more. And that's what scientists mean when they say, well, it's not testable, you know, to have just like... And it's not magic either. It's uh, not magic. We got rid of magic with Galileo and Newton and, and, and chemists. You know, they showed us that it was just stuff interacting, and you can weigh it and measure it and put it together. And you know the real kicker is when you can do something with it. Um, you know, the practical results tell you that you got chemistry right. You take the element, you know, you take the substance apart into its pieces, then you put them back together in the test tube, and you get the thing back. Now you know you got it right because you you did it. Yeah. Right. Um, we know Maxwell's right about electricity and magnetism because here we are on the radio. You know, we have a certain kind of circuitry that makes the right kind of radio waves. There's that energy goes out. It works. And it's not, well, and to make it to to make it come home to people who are perhaps say younger than AM radio is, uh, uh, that it's not only radio, but uh, all those things that go into uh, like satellites and, and uh, cell phones and things and geo, uh, geodetic positioning systems and so on. Yeah, all my of... physicist friends always tell me, oh, you don't know if you really quite understand and can see how quantum mechanics can be true because, you know, it's so, it's so mysterious, it's so strange. But it says every time you use your cell phone, you're using it, so just, you know, it's there. And this is the hard part about science. It's got so much detail and so many difficult pieces that very few people can learn. Well, I don't know if anybody could possibly know enough to know all the sciences. I mean, there has to be whole. I mean, it's just so big now. And so it becomes a kind of magic of its own. Um, what was that, that great Arthur C. Clarke quote, you know, any technology advanced enough to be advanced will be seen to be magic? <laughs> You know, so it's not surprising that we have trouble sometimes with the deep sciences, the difficult sciences, the complicated sciences, because there's so much in them. It takes years to learn it, um, and yet you have to kind of trust what someone tells you. Um, I think those are big issues for the public. You know, who do I who do I believe? Who do I trust? Well, let's pause for a moment and mm -hmm. uh, give you a chance to check. To check your breath, to, to get your breath back, and uh, uh, and we'll come back and talk about maybe the influence of of uh, Darwin opening a door and walking through it and, and leading us through it in terms of seeing other things on the other side of the door. I, you know, about how things change, looking for the mechanisms, what you call the pattern, and 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 that kind of thing. I do have to tell you, I always think of this when I hear Arthur C. Clarke's name. Uh, anywhere. He once came to the United States, he, he said, and in, in Boston they held him up. The, the, uh, the, the guy from the uh, 
the Czechs people, you know, coming into the yeah. Czechs passports and so on. And he would not, the guy would not let him in to, to North America until he explained the end of 2001. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I sort of hope that that's true. And I'm, I'm really not even interested in having the end explained after hearing that story. We're talking with Dr. William Kemmler, professor of history at NC State University. He has a, uh, I gave you a little bit of his pedigree, and he has several titles, and I failed to give you those tonight. But let's just say he's pretty much at the top of the heap these days, I think. You're assistant department chairman, aren't you, William? Yes, I am. And, uh, and supervises things having to do with the teaching of undergraduates and so on. So he's, he has made himself worthwhile at NC State University, and he's kind enough to come and visit with us. We're going to talk some more about uh, Darwin, whose birthday would be uh, Friday, I believe. Friday. Uh, yep. You know, when I, William and I'm holding off on this break, but when I was a kid, you had to learn three birthdays in in uh, February, like in the first and second, third grade. And one was one was uh, Lincoln, one was Washington, which was the 22nd. And you know, these days they've combined those into one day, which is neither one of those birthdays, but rather something they call President's Day. But you want to guess who the other guy was? He was a kind of scientist. Hmm. I'm being unfair fair to you. It was uh, Thomas Alva Edison. Oh, Edison's birthday. He was, right. a, he was a real hero in up to mid-century. That's right. true. He was, he was a virtual god. I think his, yeah. his, uh, his uh, obituary in the New York Times was one of the longest ones they ever had, and it was the front page obituary. It was like I'll bet you everybody of our generation read that little tan biography book of the you know of, oh, yeah. about him. The one from Bob's Merrill, I think, mm-hmm. is where it came Bob's from. Merrill biographies, right? And we found out that, uh, uh, and I'm not sure this is true, uh, but that he was supposed to have had his his hearing injured by the the uh, somebody pulling him up on the train by his ears at some point. I don't know if you remember that. You should be careful what you let children read. They'll remember it. (laughs) Yes, they will. We'll be back with Dr. William Kemmler in just a couple of minutes. In commemoration of the first date, uh, he was born in 1809 on February the 12th, the same day that Abraham Lincoln was born. We're talking, of course, about Charles Darwin and uh, Dr. William Kemmler, who is a professor of history at NC State University, is our guest tonight. Uh, Dr. Kimmer, um, one of the things we talked about was the uh, influence of uh, Charles Darwin in in other sciences. And for some reason, something popped into my mind, and I'm not even sure why, but there's a writer of popular science named Simon Winchester. I don't know if you've ever yeah. encountered him or not, but he has a book called The, the Map That Changed the World. And uh, I think uh, and it's, it's about geology. Uh, yeah, that was a fascinating map. You know, early in the 1800s, geology was really just getting its footing. You know, it started in the 1700s when people doing a lot of quarrying for stone because, you know, the population of Europe was expanding and they were building more and more. Think of all those beautiful white stone buildings of you know, like our capital and, you know, a city like London or Paris. And they were digging lots more coal and iron ore because we were moving to a metal and coal-fired age, you know, away from wood, you know, and, you know, uh, into much more metal, um, and the the fuels for all of that. And all that digging started getting people questioning about all the layers of the earth and what they were finding and how it seemed orderly and patterned. And they started mapping. I mean, that's what you do, right? You you notice the same seam is here 
as in another place. You make a map, and this um, and Smith made this map. It was amazing. It was like fourteen by twelve feet, and it came in a fold out in the book. Out of an ordinary sized book, your map would unfold to full size. I mean, just the craziest book production you can imagine. Um, and he, it looked like a. It's like if you ordered the North Carolina geological map today, you know, the colors of the different right. zones of rock. That's what he did. And it got people thinking about this broad pattern across the earth that things were connected. That's one of those pieces that Darwin needed, that everything was tied together. But also it was bigger than just local, you know, what happens in my county, that these patterns were affected the world, you know, that animals here came from somewhere else. These, you know, developed in their in place right here. Those sorts of patterns, they weren't really possible until we traveled all over the world with sail and then steam, until people explored. Um, I think maybe the, one of these shows coming up, we should talk about um, Alexander von Humboldt, because that was his idea at the, right. same, the same decades, that everything is connected together. Another one of those common sense things we have it, now. Well, don't you, when you start digging down, don't you start uncovering fossils and other things that may have been but are no more? Uh, that's, yeah, and the fossils were a sensation. I mean, you imagine you're in a river quarry, you know, a riverbed quarry, you know, up, you know, on the hillside above a river valley, the, the Moselle, the Moose River in Germany, and they unearthed this. 16-foot-long monster in bones. You know, it's a, what we call a mosasaur, you know, one of those swimming dinosaur-looking things. Um, you know, what a sensation. You know, giant sea monsters in the hills of Germany. Well, well of course, right away you ask, how did that get there? Um, you know, and so you have to start thinking about past climates, you know, the sea levels going up and down, you know, different kinds of, you know, tropical things found in Europe. You know, what's that all about? And those kinds of questions, really got going in the 1800s, early 1800s. And people realized that this was going to be a new interpretation of the Earth, you know, what we now call deep time, you know, a really ancient Earth. Um, one of my favorite books in that period is the Reverend Buckland. He was a, a clergyman, as all professors at Oxford were, and he wrote a book where he basically argued, there's nothing here that should frighten us. Copernicus once disturbed us, and now we take it as ordinary astronomy, we shouldn't be afraid of new ideas. This new time thing is wonderful. And, you know, what about the scriptures? He says, that eh, you know, they're meant to be metaphor. They're meant to be spiritual lessons. They're not a book of geology. And that really opened up the possibility of somebody like a Darwin saying, well, let me ask for a natural explanation of this, you know, this, these sequences of fossils you find. Who was the minister that dated everything so that, he could say that, uh, I know you used to compare yeah, Bibles yeah, so, that had his dating as a part of it, and he said yeah. that you the, that the man was created, uh, Allah, in, in the Genesis on the morning of September 23rd, 6006. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, that was the, the Bishop Usher, Usher an Irish yeah. bishop of the Church of England, and you know, that, that was way back, that was in the time of Newton, you know, that was in the 1670s oh, okay. and 80s. And, you know, Long before they had found so many of these patterns of the layers of the earth and the fossils and the changes and the connections, it was a really gentle, easy acceptance that there was going to be a new science of geology, really our can, first historical Can we hold science. it right there and let this be a tease? Hmm? You can find out more, ladies and gentlemen, right after we make a check of the news. The Tom Kearney Show on WPTF Radio. We'll be back. 
usually point to tomorrow night and tell you what's going to be on then. Uh, Pam Beck, who is our uh, gardening expert and who writes a lot about gardening things and who's done a lot of historical research about plants, uh, will be our guest tomorrow night. And she quite often appears at this time of the year around Valentine's Day and talks about the symbolism of flowers. She does this for Christmas, too, by the way, so you may have heard her before, but the symbolism of flowers, and uh, such as roses and so on, for uh, for uh, Valentine's Day. So uh, Pam will be here with us tomorrow night, and Friday night will be our Friday night trivia night. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and on, on Monday night, the, the uh, other person whose birthday is on uh, February 12th, uh, along with Charles Darwin, Abraham Lincoln will be recognized, and Dr. Gerald Prokopovitz, who teaches history at East Carolina University, will be our guest uh, to talk about Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, some of the important things in his career and life. So uh, that's uh, some of the programs coming up here on WPTF. Another historian, our own NC State historian, William Kimmler, who's a professor of the history of science. I don't know if that actually is the title. He's a professor of history and his specialty science. I better get it right if I'm going to do it here. Dr. Kimmler, uh I may be throwing you a curveball, but I'm going to try to lead you in another direction for a minute just because I'm curious. Is that okay? Yes. Uh, we've, we've, we've noticed that we have, uh, well, we have Darwin here doing, dealing with uh, the natural sciences uh, and uh, with, I guess you would say, biology uh, uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And we've also noted that uh, geology is, William Smith was making the, 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 the great map. In fact, I think I remember here, I think that's the map that's hanging in the Royal Society, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, I may be wrong about uh-huh. that. But isn't this about the time that the germ theory of disease uh, appeared or began to get a little bit of a foothold? Right. It's exactly the same timing. Um, you know, it's the epidemics of cholera in the 1840s that led people to really be examining all the theories they had. They were all in contention. There were multiple theories of what caused the disease, how to contain it. The only thing they really need, knew to do was to quarantine and isolate people. So many of our social practices date back centuries of, you know, faced with an unknown thing. They at least knew that there was something about being in the same place. You all got it. Um, and then people traced it much more precisely in the 1850s. And well, it was hard. I mean, even when they figured out that it came from water, you know, from being contaminated, not everybody knew it was germs. Um, they thought well, maybe it was chemical or other sorts of things. Right, I'm, um, I'm, and it took a while in the 1860s to really realize it was that cellular life. Well, the wonderful thing for those who indulge a little is that Mr. Pasteur, so famous for demonstrating that germ theory, he got his start helping solve problems of fermentation in the wine and beer industry in France. Um, you know, discovering that that chemical reaction wasn't just chemistry, it was living chemistry. And that allowed uh, this kind of opening to, well, there's a living chemistry of the, you know, the organism you imbibe makes you sick. It changes your physiology. Well, this- I'm... I know you're familiar with the book, The Ghost Map. Yeah. Actually, I'm teaching it next week, so <laughs> well, <laughs> quite actually, familiar this week with you, it. Well, you were just talking about it, although you didn't say it, but uh, I read that's a fascinating book because the man that wrote it, is, is the man that did what the book is about and made The Ghost Map, was able to make the map and establish in his mind that cholera was being caused by bad water 
so yeah. they took the pump handle off so people couldn't get the water. But he still didn't know the mechanism. He still right. didn't know about the, he thought it might be miasma or something like so, that. And that's what's so fascinating about it is, you know, we think that, oh, you know, it's, it's all tied together by the one person. In fact, I'm going to push back a little bit. Like, you know, we always talk about Darwin, and we talk about the John Snows who figured out cholera. It doesn't end with the one person. And you said something before the break about, you know, opening doors. That's what these great sciences really did, is they opened up all kinds of avenues to find out more things. You know, so when Snow figured out the pattern that people get sick here, they drink the same water, he traced the water companies that provided the water, where it came from. He, I, I loved one bit of his reasoning. He figured out that all the symptoms were in your gut. So he didn't believe it came from the air because you never got like coughing, chest congestion, you know, like the flu does. Mm-hmm. So he knew it was, air, well, you know, foodborne, ingested, not breathed. But you know that kind of logic to put it together, and yet, like you said, he still didn't know about bacteria. He didn't know what it was, but it led to the next step to look for things, right? To He's look in the water. Name, I, I've always meant to read up on this guy, and I never have. But this will this will be the occasion. Robert Koch. Yeah, that? the young German doctor who, in fact, did finally isolate tuberculosis. I mean, right. what a breakthrough that was—a major killer of the 19th century. You know, cholera, anthrax. I mean, I mean, we're talking enormously significant diseases, and really started bacteriology, along with you know many others. Of course, these aren't single people, but um, yeah, and he came up with a neat bit of scientific thinking which is, well, how do you convince yourself that you found the cause? You know, when I was mentioning before the really difficult sciences, you know, how do we know that thing is the mechanism? How do we know the virus is making, you know, people cough and have COVID? Um, You know, what you have to have is the presence of it, and then when it's not there, you can't have the disease. You know, there's all this kind of logic that has to tie together to convince you that you found the right piece. And I think that's what's important about this whole method that everybody we've talked about tonight was doing. They were all trying to have multiple lines of evidence that confirmed each other, so the story became really solid. I think of those great, you know, cop procedural law shows on TV where you get the idea of how all the evidence ties together, not just one bit of circumstantial evidence, but enough to convince you that it's a neat package that all goes together. You know, until about 20 years ago, and this shows, I think of fashion, unless I've missed part of my history, what we now call forensics, I guess was there, but they they didn't have a lot of TV programs with them on. And I used to watch this program, it shows I didn't have a date, on Saturday night, called The the New Detective. And it was on like an educational channel or something, and it was about how they do what we now call forensics. And there's three or four television programs that are very popular that are built around forensics now. And then that's, it's science, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of detective thinking is one of my favorite metaphors for the kind of method that uh, the geologist, that Snow with, uh, John Snow with cholera, that Darwin used. I mean, you know, they're taking different types of evidence. You know, you have the blood, and you have the position of the body, and you have the, you know, the motive of the possible suspects, and you have the, you know, you have all those things. You don't take just one of them. You're trying to, you know, wrap it up in a um, self-consistent pattern. Kind of interesting that forensic science starts also a little bit later, about the 1880s, 
Um, they've got a good enough chemistry to trace poisons. Uh, they figured out uh, fingerprints, you know, that they're unique. Or, um, you know, lots of new sorts of things started coming together. Science and psychology was developing so they could think more about the psychology of different types of criminals. And and I believe there was a, a doctor in, I, I may be wrong on this, so you may have smacked me on the, the hand, but in in Scotland, named Bell, who taught uh, other doctors like this, but but the the guy that got affected by it was, uh, oh, why can't it, the guy who created Scott, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, uh, because the way Sherlock Holmes approaches those most questions is, through something that we could pass for a scientific method. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can think of Sherlock Holmes as being a natural outcome of Charles Darwin and some, you know, these other people we're talking about. The way Darwin puts together clues is what Holmes is after. It's a narrative, right? It's a story of what happened, that you reconstruct the story from the lines of evidence and how they fit together. Um, so that that detective way is a nice way of thinking about what, you know, you and I were trained to do as historians, right? but it's also what the historical sciences do and what any of the complicated sciences do. That's what a nutrition scientist is trying to do, trace the foods you ate and your behavior and figure out how you ended up with your health. Um, you know, they're incredibly complicated because there's so much going on. The other thing, it's hard to isolate pieces sometimes. Right. Well, I, I read a, I have arthritic knees, and I read an article in a, a health magazine one time about trying to decide what foods, I'm running right your alley now, or in your lane, so to speak, uh, trying to figure out what foods promote in individuals' uh, attacks of arthritic uh, pain or inflammation or whatever. And the way the guy was explaining to do it is you remove the oatmeal, and if it, if it goes away, it was the oatmeal that caused it, you see, that kind of thing. You know, this starts back in the early 1800s. I mean, they were so dismayed um, by the, the standard fact of medicine. Each of us is different. We all react to the same disease just a little differently. There's an overall pattern. You know, it's pretty hard to resist getting infected by some things. But, you know, like a common cold, it goes around. Um, and we all have slightly different symptoms. But within a general cluster, we recognize it as a cold. They were so demoralized by this individuality that many doctors thought that, you know, nailing it down, doing experiments, it was all too uh, non-predictable, too, you know, couldn't be determined, that they sort of gave up on science. And, you know, what happened was they figured out the chemistry. You know, and the more that we saw that chemicals do the same thing over and over and over again to people, you know, like anesthesia works, you know, make the ether, give it to the patient, you know, um, the more that we did the chemistry, the more we got convinced that, in fact, we can do one-by-one -one experiments like that. Um, well, when this really comes home to you is when you go for your annual vi visitation, you know, say for your physical, mm -hmm. and the doctor sends all that stuff out to the lab, you know, the, the, different, the blood and the different panels that have to be done, and, and you've turned into just about a purely chemical object at that point. Yeah, I mean, and so there's the... You know, there's always the danger of losing the complication. There's other things going on, you know, and you react differently at different times of your life, different, you know, circumstances you're in. But there's an underlying chemistry that's going on all the time. Yeah, it, it, that balance is difficult. It's, it's not surprising that these are um, sort of ever-shifting sciences, we might say. <laughs>
you know, the advice you get seems to change all the time. It's not because the science is bad. It's because the problem is complicated. Right, and and, and I think sometimes something that isn't said maybe by by scientists or doctors or whatever is is that uh, some decisions are, well, you pointed out one thing, people are different, and the other ones, some decisions. I know this is something that, that historians uh don't always make people aware of is that some of the things they say are tentative. This is what we know right now. Yeah. But it may not stay that way. I, we need to take a break, and I want to ask you if we can take up one more question tonight sometime, and you may not want to do this, but the application of Darwinism to the social sciences. Yeah. Is we that okay? Do that. Okay, because that certainly was a fa- I, I, I was watching a, a documentary the other day, and it had to do with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the robber barons and, you know, the steel mills and all that stuff. But the rationalization, I'm trying to think of the guy who did it now. Uh, but uh, it, 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 what we're looking for is uh, survival of the fittest as an explanation. Yeah, well, let's come back to that, yeah. Can we do, okay, Dr. William Kemmler, professor of history at NC State University, is our guest tonight. We're talking about Charles Darwin, by way of commemorating his birth date and the anniversary, he would be 212 if he made it to uh, made it to Friday, and uh, and he uh, is. Well, I, I, William, if you're still there, I think uh, somebody it was Daniel Dennett or somebody. I'm not sure who it was, but some scientist uh, said that 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 Darwin's idea of uh, natural selection was the greatest scientific idea that had ever been arrived at. I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'd want a handful of them to get a complete world, but it's one of the big ones. I mean, it, was, it was a shocker, and it's really, it, it unveils a lot. That's what we ask yeah, big touched, ideas. Touched on a lot of other things, too, and was the key to, to them. We'll be back to talk about maybe social Darwinism right after this. The gentleman that I always enjoy talking to, and if you listen to the broadcast, you can tell why. He's Dr. William Kemmler. That's K-I-M-L-E-R, who's a professor of history at NC State University, and his specialty is the history of science, and uh, he's the, the guy that helps us recognize Charles Darwin, and we're doing it tonight by noting some of the ways that Darwin's uh, work uh, influenced uh, other disciplines and other ways of looking at things. And Dr. Kimmer, I, I, we can hardly go by at least mentioning social Darwinism, and I happened to think as I was, the, the theme was playing for us to come back, that my, one of my favorite historians of the 60s was Richard Hofstetter. Yeah. And his first book was A History of Social Darwinism in America. It's a great book, and I will say I think he overplayed it a little. I mean, the scholarship since then has shown us that there were really multiple currents. I mean, it was easy to see at first that the excitement of this new theory, like so many new sciences, it gets applied right away in all kinds of ways. Right. In fact, new ways that the founders didn't think about. And of course, one was the social, once we had this sense of evolution. And since Darwin had built a lot of his argument on pointing out how animal and plant breeding in agriculture, you know, our pets and our food, you know, how we can see those changes, people right away in a very, a very optimistic century about using science, applying it to solve problems. I mean, we just talked about they discovered germs and started attacking tuberculosis. We got vaccination. We got clean water. We got sewer systems. We got public health departments. You know, they were applying. We got electrical lighting and, you know, and radio. We were getting advances from the sciences. And so I think 
said, people said, let's use evolution to solve human social problems. And, you know, there's always been a sense that the uppers are there because they deserve to be, and the lower people are there because they deserve to be. And people translated the Darwin fitness right into that. Um, they didn't invent, you know, a class hierarchy or superior and inferior people. They just used the new science to put a gloss on it. Um, some of the scientists were involved. Sometimes it was non-scientists using it. You know, that's what makes it messy. I would, will point out there were other uses besides social Darwinism, you know, of a sort of the fitness. And we think of eugenics and the horrors that came from that, right. of sorting out people. But a lot of Americans ad uh, accepted Darwin because they saw how he unified humans into one race. That, you know, that we were all shared so much more in, evolu you know, in evolution together, and they combated racism. They made it as an argument for anti-slavery. You know, the book came out in, during the, um, right before, it hit America just as the Civil War was cranking up. Um, and a lot of abolitionists embraced Darwin because they could see the unity he gave to humankind. So we get, you know, multiple directions. I think that's usual for these new sciences. They get used sometimes in great ways, um, sometimes in terrible ways, to, you know, sometimes intended, sometimes not. That's history, right? Um, all those unintended consequences that flow out of great developments. I like that unintended consequences because that 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 kind of reminds me of something I was I was doing a little prep this afternoon for the show. I didn't want to confront you and our audience with, without being warmed up a little bit. But strangely enough, I ran across a uh, uh, thing on YouTube that was a, you may know this guy because he teaches at Cornell. He's an economist, and I think his name is Robert Frank. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and he's a guy who believes in luck, you know, and that would affect the way that a lot of people who were involved in the social Darwinism thing, and that is you're on top because you're better. You're And Michael Sandel is involved in this, too, though. I won't get political, but there's a great phrase from the, the old Texas political writer Molly Ivins about a certain um, president who came from Texas. <laughs> she said he was he was born on third base and always thought he had hit a uh, triple. <laughs> you know, this sort of way. Um, you know, the, the Darwin um, ideas about fitness and hierarchy, they had a huge influence in people trying to apply that to, you know, res res uh, resisting immigration or, you know, into racial sort of hierarchies, you know what? Uh, yeah. all sorts of ways. But there are other things as well, like understanding disease. Um, you know, it's a mixed message, of course. William, I need to stop you. I was oh. so interested in what you were saying that I wasn't looking at the clock, but we've just about used up our time. Thanks for being with us. And You're remember welcome. that subject you thought of just a moment ago uh, in, in the program, and we'll come back on another show and, and deal with it. But thanks for being with us tonight. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you.